Join with me in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. You know, the problem with marriage is that you always marry someone who can talk back and speak back to you. You think I'm kidding. That is, that is uh, uh, something that is very real in married life. So this morning, I want to address the subject conflict and opportunity for romance. Uh, wading through those can greatly enhance a marital uh, relationship. There was this one woman who was um, eating lunch with some friends after a long weekend with her husband, and she um, acquiesced to going fishing with him. She'd never been before and went, and he complained about her the entire fishing trip, she said. She said, he complained that I talked too loud and would scare the fish off. Uh, he complained that I used the wrong bait or lure. He complained that I reeled the... Uh, uh, the lure of the bait in too quickly. Uh, and what's worst of all is that I, I caught more fish than he did. Well, there are opportunities, large and great, for uh, marriages when it comes to conflict. It reminds me of a meme I saw on Facebook this past week about a um, wife that uh, said to the effect, uh, when your pastor tells you to bring your problems to God and to the altar, and she's carrying her husband on her shoulders. Well, it looked better than it sounded, but it was uh, quite instructive. At one point or another, nearly every man, every woman that's been married would want to bring a spouse to the altar, figuring that is my problem. In, in chapter 5, verse 2 to chapter 6, verse 3, again, the chapter division here is disruptive, um, we find this couple, Solomon and the Shulamite woman, uh, enduring a conflict and resolving it. From chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, Solomon comes and makes a request. He's rather clumsy and she's rather insensitive, but in uh, verse number 2, here's what she recounts. I slept, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, I mean, he piles one affectionate term on top of another. He is, uh, to put it mildly, up to something. For my head is covered with dew in my locks with the drops of the night. He is coming in late from work. And here's how she replies. Now again, his approach to a romantic encounter is rather clumsy in verse 2. And she's profoundly insensitive in verse number 3. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, and the floors were dirty, and so that was important. How can I defile them? Well, in response, my beloved put his hand to the latch of the door. Apparently, he could reach through and undo the inner bar of the door. And my heart, uh, well, he goes on to say, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. Well, essentially, the door was barred and shut and locked. And it goes on to verse 5. I arose to open for my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, so she hastened out of bed and put some perfume on, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Well, that is the request, but then there is here a retreat beginning in verse 6. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. She had wounded the sensitive male ego, and he was gone. By the way, I'd suggest you never miss, uh, uh, never underestimate that. And then it goes on 
she begins a search for him. Now, we don't know if she's dreaming. Uh, verse 2 might indicate that, or if this is actually something that takes place. I, I lean towards the former instead of the latter, but good commentators argue for a dream. Um, I, I suspect it may have uh, actually been an actual event. But she goes on to say, My beloved turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he could. He gave me no answer. The watchman who went about the city found me. We were thinking that she was out uh, involved in some crime of some kind or another. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Well, she arose and responded to his clumsy request and overcame her insensitive response, but it was too late. Well, she goes on from verse 6, or excuse me, verse um, <clears throat> number 9, down to the end of verse 16, and recounts from memory all of the physical qualities that he possessed. And she describes him from head to toe. She ignites her memory uh, in love towards him, and essentially says, he is a hunk, a hunk of love. I think she probably was the inspiration for Elvis's song by similar title. Well, she eventually finds him, and here's what she finds him doing in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Where's your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where's your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? Well, where, where is Solomon? Verse 2. My beloved has gone into his garden and is listening off to the side to the voice of Darth Vader. Where did that come from? Uh, okay. Thank you, Kathy. Great. <laughs> oh, don't take over. All right, verse number two. <laughs> My beloved has gone to his garden. Now look where Solomon is after getting his tender feelings hurt after the crushing, the insensitive crushing of the male ego. Verse 2, My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. And here's her response. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. So he's with his sheep in a garden, and he's gathering flowers for her after she has ruthlessly crushed his male ego. That's what's happened here. Solomon and the Shulamite woman demonstrate how to resolve conflict in marriage. Mature Christian marriages, if they're going to reach that point, must master resolving conflict. Now, I want to make one quick caveat here. I think that these principles are very, very helpful for marriages that are experiencing a normal degree of conflict. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. However, these principles may one day help other marriages, but marriages that are experiencing physical violence and abuse or marriages that are intensely racked with mental illness. There may be some other needs there, and I'll address that at the end of the message. If you're suffering from physical abuse, it is perfectly fine. In fact, it's urgent and necessary that you remove yourself from the abuse. And if we can help you, we would be glad to. But 
Within the normal realms of conflict that happen in ordinary marriages, this text is profoundly helpful. So how do we master uh, resolving conflict? Well, there are several uh, pieces here that will help us greatly. One is realism. Realism. In verse number 16 of chapter 4, in chapter 5, verse 1, it becomes very, very clear that what they have experienced is a very um, satisfying wedding night. And they have a very vigorous and very appropriate but very satisfying sexual relationship. And that's indicated in chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1, in some delicate poetic language. Nevertheless, they experience some conflict in their marital relationship. Even this marriage had conflict. In fact, one pastor noticed in his commentary that 20% of the Song of Solomon is given to marriage conflict. 20%. And if this is the marriage God has highlighted on the pages of the Bible, into which he has dedicated eight chapters of intense, effusive, romantic love, then you've got to know the best of marriages in the mind of God are going to experience some conflict. No one gets in or through or out of this world without relationship conflict, especially with those they see on a daily basis. So I want to encourage you, if you experience marriage conflict, or I shouldn't say if, should I? When you experience marital conflict, don't panic. It's ordinary, it's going to happen, and the only people really that experience marital conflict of any kind are those that are committed to marriage. Those that are apathetic just don't care enough to say anything. But when you have conflict, usually it's because two people are very committed to one another and to the marriage. What they've got to do is handle it in a productive way. So someone is going to forget the keys. Someone's going to forget their Bible. Someone is going to spill chocolate milk on clothes that have just been ironed. Someone's going to wear a dirty shirt, usually under the age of 14. Someone's going to fail to comb their hair, even if it's three foot long. Some want McDonald's over Bojangles. Some want to listen to 90.9 instead of 104.7, the fish. Some do not want to sit on their own side. Some want to sit on your side. Some want to ride up front. Some don't want to ride at all. Some want to run ahead. Some want to lag behind. Some want to sleep. Some want to talk. And that's just Sunday morning. (laughs) And we still have six days during the week to talk about it. In fact, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that annoys me about my dear bride, and there's really not much, but Uh, One of the things it does is that when we're driving somewhere on a lengthy trip, she wants to sleep, but I want to talk. And it bothered me greatly. Bothered me greatly that she would just fall asleep. I mean, she can fall asleep anywhere. Hurricane, tornado, turbulence in an airplane, doesn't matter. We're about to die and she can sleep. The next time that happens, I've determined, especially at night, what I'm going to do is find a truck stop and pull the car in front of a semi-tractor trailer truck, put the gear in neutral, depress the accelerator, and go, ah! See what happens when she wakes up. 
Every marriage relationship is going to have some relational conflict. And so you don't necessarily need to panic when these things arise. Everyone has it. You just need to master how to deal with it. So that leads us to the second element of resolving marital conflict, and that is anticipation. You need to anticipate conflict will usually arise in transitions. And that's really what we find in the text. Now, transition is when you go from one state or place to, and not state like the 50 states, but one condition or place to another. That is an opportunity for conflict. When you go from being asleep to awake, some of you are still conflicted about that now. Uh, when you go from your pajamas to decent clothing, that at least is worthy to be viewed in public. When you go from home to church, from car to church, parking lot to building, and again, that's just Sunday morning. Every one of those transitions gives you the opportunity for conflict. And, and so you think about Monday morning. Oh, that's conflict on steroids, amen? That's what Monday is, especially Monday morning. And that, that is true coming home. That is true transitioning from a kitchen to a dinner table. Every transition from one state to the next is, is, is the case. Transitioning physically, when, when your body's going through changes, there's enormous, enormous possibility of conflict uh, there. I remember uh, when I was an interim pastor in New Mexico, I flew every weekend to New Mexico for a church out there. They had my family come out three times in the 15 months we were there. We stayed at a, a camp nearby that a church member ran, and we drove in one day, but before we left the uh, cabins where we were staying, I asked Michelle for my cell phone. Uh, she had had it and was using it for some particular purpose. Probably hers died after the umpteenth million time, and um, she uh, needed to use mine. Well, she didn't give it back, and so I asked her for it, and she said, um, I, well, she said, well, go, go look in the cabin. Perhaps it's there. So I went in and looked in the cabin, and uh, I couldn't find it. I came back out, and I said, I am sure you still have it. I don't recall you uh, giving it back to me. She said, look in your backpack. Look in your... I said, well, you go back in the cabin and look for it. I'm sure I did not receive it back from you. Well, when she went into the cabin, I looked in my backpack, and there the thing was. So I picked it up and put it in her purse. Hey, I'm not going to be wrong even if I am. I might be in doubt. I'm, you know. Well, she comes back, and I said, Honey, check in your purse just one more time. Just satisfy me. She looked in her purse and found it and started dying laughing. She bursted out with a large cackle of laughter, larger than what she's usually known for, and she said, uh, she said You put this in here. I said, I did not. Oh, I lied. I lied badly. She said, you put this in here. I said, I did not. She said, yes, you did. Because when you went back into the cabin to look for it, I looked in my purse. It was there, and I put it in your backpack. It's one of the rare times in my married life where we both were caught at the same time. <laughs> Usually, it's me. But that's a transition, going from one place to the next, and there is 
the opportunity for conflict. Well, this is what happens in the text. They're going through a transition here in verse um, 2 and 3. He's coming in late after work. He doesn't call, doesn't send a text, nor smoke signal, doesn't send a messenger or anything else to let her know he's going to be late. But then his mind, as he's coming back, begins to think about romantical things. And she has made another transition. She's gone from the home to go to sleep at night. So verse 3, that's why his head is covered with dew. The dew in Israel at certain times of the year can be very heavy and noticeable. And it's, in fact, it's dripping from his hair. And then in verse 3, well, he, he awkwardly and clumsily proposes romantic encounters. In verse 3, she says, well, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? This is the official not tonight position. That's what this is. And that's what happens in the text. And that leads to the difficulty in the conflict. Um, During transitions, if you're not navigating them very well right now, it's probably wise to start anticipating tension. In other words, if you're constantly experiencing tension during your transitions, your next transition is probably going to be much like all the other ones you've had through the months and years. Unless you change. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over again with your transitions and expect different results. If you keep on doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep on getting what you've been getting, and someone's got to get tired of it. In fact, you probably already are. So what you do is that you anticipate the transition, anticipate unless we do something different, we're probably going to have conflict again, and start planning. Identify the transitions that cause problems and then plan to make them different. Now, it takes some discipline, but it's a whole lot better to discipline yourself than to scream at each other again and guarantee your kids are going to need counseling. It's a whole lot better to do that. Discipline and anticipation is profoundly helpful. If mornings are difficult because you wait till the morning to gather your clothing to put together breakfast and whatever it is that you've got to do in the morning, perhaps you'll want to do that 6 p.m. the night before. You see, you're still going to do the same thing, only you might be able to do it the evening before at a time where things are a lot more calm, you've got more time, and you're not rushed, and people aren't sleepy. People aren't still half asleep and merely half awake. I I don't know what transitions are challenging you. Morning time is especially one. And can you imagine fighting with one another every morning and with every morning transition? Doesn't somebody get tired of that? Isn't it time to anticipate we're probably going to have a difficulty at that transition unless we do something different? A little bit of discipline will go an awful long way. And so Saturday night, I push everybody's buttons as sweet as I can, which isn't very sweet, but as sweet as I can, to get everyone at 6 p.m. before 6.30 shows up, starting at 6 p.m. before 6.30 comes around, to get ready for Sunday morning. And I've got to tell you, it is made with four kids, all four with different personalities, a whole lot easier. Now, I'm going to use personal illustrations in this message, and I don't want you to get the idea that we're a perfect family. My wife's not perfect. But um, she's a lot closer than her husband, I can guarantee you that. But I I don't want you to think that, but it's all I've got. But disciplining yourself is so much better than screaming at each other again. 
being frustrated starting the day uh, that way. You may not get it perfect, but if you can at least improve and improve step by step over the weeks and months, you've gone a long way to helping one another. So realism, anticipation, then initiation. Chapter 5, verse 6 implies that she initiated a solution. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. At the very least, she did seek him to reconcile. In strong marriages that resolve and master conflict resolution, somebody's the big boy, somebody's the big girl, and they make the decision to initiate reconciliation. Someone takes the initiative to, make, to, to reconcile. Healthy marriages are not made up of a husband and wife who ask or debate who started it. That often doesn't calculate into those kinds of marriages. They just kind of assume they're both responsible in healthy and strong marriages. They are more interested not in asking who started it, but how can we finish it. And, and perhaps in the healthiest marriages, they fall over, all over each other initiating solutions. So they don't spend a lot of time blaming and debating the facts of the conflict. They just aim for solutions. So when conflict arises, someone asks, what can we do to resolve this? Uh, th there have been times I've had to go up to Michelle and put my arm around her and pull her close and say, look, it doesn't look like you and I are going to agree on this. And that's okay. We don't have to. But we're going to get through it. And we're going to be okay. And somehow or another, we'll, we'll fix this. And whatever you think of that I can do or change, you'll let me know. And if I can do it, I will. And then it kind of slips from my mind everything she needs to change. But that does something in a relationship when someone takes the initiative to do so. One other thing I think is very wise in initiating a resolution is to tell your husband, tell your wife, you know, you probably have a legitimate issue that you're concerned about. One of the worst things in the world we do to each other is that before we understand the problem, we delegitimize their concern. And so, so often what happens is that debates in marriages oftentimes are someone trying to prove he or she has a legitimate issue and deserves to be heard. Can I just suggest, go ahead and assume your, your spouse deserves to be heard. Just go ahead and assume it. Most likely, if there wasn't a legitimate issue, There'd be no conflict. There'd be no debate. Just go ahead and assume this person, my, my spouse, has a legitimate issue, and we need to work on it. The fourth thing is memory. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, is a text that actually is the longest text describing a man anywhere in the Scripture. Now, if most women wrote this, how would they describe a man? Oh, there's a lot to pick on, isn't there? There is. Now, perhaps that's not what you would do with your husband. But what she does is that she describes him in glowing terms from head to foot. And she does it from memory. She does it from memory. Good memories are necessary for marriages that resolve conflicts. And I've got to tell you, when I think of some memories with my bride, even the simplest ones, 
it makes an awful lot of difference and warms my heart. I, 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 remember, I remember her laughter. Now, that's a joyful thing to remember. I love to hear that woman laugh. I remember her smile. All of our life, all of our married life, it has lit up the, the room. And I, I really like to hear her voice. I guess I'm going to have to confess with them, I'm lovesick. As a result of the memories. It is good to make constant deposits in the bank of memory. Because you're going to have to withdraw some. In other words, when, when you're in conflict, it might be a good idea to remember why it is that you were first attracted to one another. It might help to remember why it is you married one another. One of the, one of the delightful things that we get to do is that we get to meet new people an awful lot of times, and invariably, whether it's a guest here at the church or someone that moves to Athens or a neighbor, invariably... Somebody will ask us our story, and we look at each other to see who's going to tell it. And I, I can't tell you, there have been dozens upon dozens of times in the last two years that if we have told people our story of how we met and how we fell in love, why we decided to marry, and things like that. In fact, we've told it so often here, I hope you're not getting sick of it, because I sure am not. The memory does something and turns the tide of the conflict. It, could, it is something that, the memory is something that is a bucket of water that can douse flames of conflict, aggravation, and irritation. And so rehearsing and remembering marvelous memories of one another is a great help. And, and then there's a fifth element here, and that is faithfulness. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, they asked the Shulamite woman in verse 1 where her beloved is, and she has found him, and he has called her a lily back in chapter 2, verse 2, and now he's picking lilies for her. In other words, the marital vow that he made to her, that probably 2,900 years ago involved something like honor and cherish, is something he's living out even during a time of conflict. Marital conflict does not release husbands and wives from their vows. You don't get to act like enemies when you have a marital conflict. You don't get to abandon your marriage vows in scandalous ways or in small ways just because Conflict has arisen to the top. When, when Michelle and I have disagreed, I've noticed something about her. She starts turning on the charm and humor. She's living out her marriage vows. Me, I go buy her a Diet Coke when I'm upset with her. That's a signal that we're turning this conflict into something productive and in something right. In other words... Whenever there is marital conflict, it's not faithfulness to the vows that are to be eliminated. Faithfulness to the vows should be exalted 
in great ways where necessary, but especially in small ways that can prove to be game changers with one another. So do the right thing always, but especially in conflict. And by the way, I need to caution you a little bit against some of these marriage, popular marriage advice books. They will say something like, counseling men especially, if you want your wife to be more agreeable and excited about romantic encounters at night, then do the dishes and vacuum the floor. I understand that, but what that does in a marriage relationship is that that says, do something nice for her to get something from her. It is at least mildly manipulative. May I just suggest something? How about you just do something nice without expecting anything in return? Because usually that counsel doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, frustration, frustration escalates and it makes the marriage and the conflict a bit more difficult. How about loving and serving unconditionally without expecting anything in return? And maybe the interest and the zeal for romance might be a byproduct, but how about just loving one another whether you get anything back or not? I, I want to conclude by saying two things. You might be thinking, I've tried all this, and it hasn't worked, or if I were to try all this, it would not work. This is too simple for what we have. You may be right, but please hear me. If what we have shared today from this text has not or cannot solve the marital problems you're facing and help resolve conflict, you need counseling. Hurry, go get it. I understand. There are some things that are so difficult and challenging Sometimes one partner is willing to work and change and the other one isn't. And there are decades of issues behind that. Who knows? But if this does not help, will not help, or has not helped, you need counseling. And you need to do something about it real soon. Your marriage, your family is very important to God. And He wants to help. But it may take a bit more attention than what we can give in a message like this. The second thing I'm I'd like to say, in closing, is that the number one sign I have found and observed of a couple that gets through marital conflict is that both of them have a spirit of reconciliation. In other words, their heart is not set on proving themselves right. Their heart is not set on dominating the other in the marriage. Their heart is not set on merely protecting themselves and saving face. Their heart is set on coming back together. They have a spirit of reconciliation. And they will lose face if necessary. They will admit wrong if necessary. They will labor, as difficult as it is, they will labor, if necessary, to make personal 
changes as long as there's reconciliation. Reconciliation is the passion, the goal, the objective. Is the air they breathe whenever there is marital conflict. If that is absent, only the intervention of the God of reconciliation will ever make a difference. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself and has committed to us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And you know what's remarkable about that? What's remarkable about that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 is that it actually begins with verse 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Without a new heart, these principles from the text may be momentary actions and commitments, but for the long haul, it takes a changed heart. And God is able to take two bitter, warring, conflicted marriage partners and change their heart and make them new and make reconciliation their value when they face marital conflict. And ladies and gentlemen, there are some marriages that will never make any progress forward until Jesus Christ is Lord and reconciler of life. You don't need a new spouse or necessarily another book. Oftentimes what we need is a new heart And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is in the business of giving new hearts. That's what He does. And we want to invite you to open up your heart to Him. Be reconciled with Him. That assumes a war. But God is willing to lay down His arms, if you are. C.S. Lewis said, Fallen man is not merely a creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. And we're inviting you to lay down your resistance, your war against God, and be reconciled to Him because you trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. Our Lord and our God, we praise You that You're the great God of reconciliation, and You put, Lord, lengthy passages in Your Word on this very subject so that we failing, weak human beings will know how to pursue it, and we'll have a vivid illustration of how passionate you are about reconciliation. Lord, in this congregation this morning, there are friends who need a new heart, or they're married to someone that needs a new heart. And they prove it with just about every transition. And we want to pray that you will come through today by the power of the Holy Spirit and bring and give by your grace new hearts. Help friends to lay down their arms, any resistance they're giving to you, and come to you and say yes to the Lord Jesus. Would you like to do that today? Do you trust Him enough? It just takes a mustard seed of faith. Small faith will get you reconciled to God. God is willing. How about you be willing now and make a decision for Christ? Others of you know Christ and you need to follow Him in baptism, why don't you come? Or you need to come and become part of Beach Haven. And God's moving on your heart, why don't you come? 
I'm going to finish my prayer. Staff will be standing here. Tim and our music ministry, worship ministry will lead us. And we're going to ask you to come and give you that great opportunity. Father, would you do a new work in hearts and lives now? And I do pray that the words of our mouth, meditation of our heart in these moments will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's sing.